morning, ladies and gentle people. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And it's great to be with you, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. Jim Shorney's here in the studio. Yes, I am. Jim, what's the official temperature? 28 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 2 Celsius. So it looks like continued daylight for a while, followed by frigid temperatures, Mm -hmm. and we're going to maybe have... Maybe have a little bit of snow. A little bit of snow. You know what? There we go. I'm going to take my... I was wearing my hat in the studio here, and I kept bumping this microphone. (laughs) So I just... There we go. Now Uh I've got it off. I'm back to, to... to regular, back to normal, as normal as I can get it. Hey, I'd like to thank you folks for the uh, birthday well wishes. Uh, my birthday was November eleventh, eleven eleven, and uh, really enjoyed the birthday. In fact, Jim Shorty and I are enjoying kind of the extension of that with some birthday coffee that my daughter Melissa gave me, some Sumatra. Yes, and uh, she got that at the mill, and we're just uh, we're just enjoying the mm-hmm. heck out of that here. Good choice, Melissa. So uh, thanks so much for listening, folks, and uh, we've got a great show for you today. Our main guest is Paul Blake Smith, and uh, his brand new book that was just released just a matter of days ago is called JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot, The Explosive New Theory of Oswald in D.C. We'll start things off today with Charlene and Pet Talk, and... uh, she should be right there. Hi, Charlene. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, are you going to go to the game today or are you working? I will be working. I think they start at 11 o'clock today, too. I think so, yeah. So we probably got a few people listening right now that were fumbling on their radios to try to find something, and they just found us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and there they go. They just turned the dial away. No. <laughs> No, we, this is a program of, of mysteries and adventure, and uh, we start the program off, as we've done for so many years, with Pet Talk, with Charlene from the Capital Humane Society, and we, we are an advocate for the Capital Humane Society and pet ownership, and it's just a delightful connection that we've had for 16, 18 years now. In fact, Bob himself, the legendary Bob Downey, mm-hmm. used to do this. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's have some fun today. Let's uh, talk about dogs and cats for adoption. But first, you've got some special things coming up. We do. Right now we have our critter adoption promotion going on. We have really cute rabbits and guinea pigs that need homes. Uh, so all their adoption fees are 50% off. So if you're looking for a smaller companion, we hope you'll consider adoption. And then we do have our annual holiday run coming up on Sunday, December 2nd. Uh, that's a great fundraiser for us. You can register by going to our website at capitalhumanesociety.org and see if it's an event that you'd like to participate in. Uh, back to the critters for a sec. My uh, my ex-wife and I used to have guinea pigs, and they were a lot of fun. And they are. I have yeah, never, really like- never seen a creature get so excited over a fresh <laughs> leaf of lettuce. That's right. They whistle, and and it's just adorable. They really are, you know, intelligent. It's so fun to watch. Okay, there's also a Seniors for Seniors Adoption Program. So senior pets with senior citizens, and uh, any day at the Pylock Pet Adoption Center, if you're older than 62, I should say 62 and older, you can get 50% off the adoption fee. 
if they adopt a animal five years of age or older. Let's and we start have w- such, yeah, we have such great animals, so it's a great time to come and take a look. What do you think? The, let's start with cats today, okay? Cats for adoption. Sounds perfect. So we'll start with Lily. So we have quite a few cats, and she's on page two of our cats, a gorgeous gray tabby, about a year old. You can see she's looking hard at the camera, wondering what's going on. Uh, She's very inquisitive, very nice, ready to explore every corner of a new home. Wow, look at that fluffy tail. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Isn't that something? Either she's excited about something or she's a little chilled. (laughs) Beautiful cat. Yes, indeed. Okay, Lily, uh, on page two of Cats for Adoption, she's a great-looking cat. And uh, who's next up for adoption? Next, we'll talk about Jake, and he is fully dilated in his picture. (laughs) You can tell he's ready to play. He's about five years old, a neutered male, uh, just loves to have fun, comes right up to anyone and says hello and is ready to be best friends. So if you're looking for a very confident companion, ask about Jake. Yeah, boy, he is fully dilated. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at me? What are you looking at? I like that toy that the photographer has got, and uh-huh. I'm going to pounce on that yeah. pretty darn quick. Exactly. I'm all business here. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, we've got Lily and Jake, and then there's... Next up is on page three, and it's Winnie, and she is a very pretty petite tabby cat, about two years old, a spade female. She has a pretty little fall scarf on there. Yeah, just a, Yeah, just a really nice kid, a kitten looking for uh, somebody who's looking for a charming sidekick. Okay, she's a great cat. I want to go back to uh, page two for a minute. I want to know how you got the cat to tolerate having a scarf on. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the cats I've been around wouldn't hot go for that. (laughs) She's pretty easygoing, yep. Okay, back to page two. Yeah, I'm looking at a cat here, Jim, um, that I just noticed there. The pose is so striking. This is Meow Meow. And they caught her with her head just peeking out of the enclosure. Wow, yeah. So there, so there, um, there is more cat there, by the way, folks, that you just get the head yeah. and shoulders. <laughs> we took that picture when she first arrived, and she was being a little bashful, so she was only poking her little head out. But now she's quite confident. Uh, I believe she's in a colony with other cats, and so she's always just... Uh, uh, prancing around. Uh, you can see all of her <laughs> if yeah. you come to the Pylog Pet Adoption Center. Yeah. Beautiful kitty. Black Striking. And, wow. Black and orange and brown. That tortoise shell look there. Just uh-huh. uh, What a cutie. Okay, the Capital Humane Society is open today and tomorrow. These great cats, Lily, Jake, Winnie, and Meow Meow, uh, go out and see them. Here's Charlene with the hours open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Dogs for adoption. Who do you want to start with first? We'll start with our perfect pair, which is Damon and Novia. (laughs) And uh, Novia is the Boston Terrier, a spade female, and Damon is a neutered male Australian cattle dog pug mix. And they just love each other, and we want them to find a great new home together. 
They're just adorable, good friends, and ready to find a fabulous family that wants to have twice the fun. Okay, does the cattle dog try to herd the other dog? <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> that would be fun to watch, wouldn't it? <laughs> Damon and Novia, uh, two dogs, and that could be a lot of fun for your family. Their pictures are up at Capital Humane Society. Damon and Novia, they are joined by... Odin. And Odom is a, a very handsome pit bull, a neutered male, just a year old, really gorgeous colors. He's got the cutest little ears with the little fold on top, um, wants to run and play, uh, go into a home where he's going to get plenty of exercise and proper care and love. Uh, so if you're looking for a very charming friend, ask about Odin. The, the uh, coloring of the ears makes the, the pink inside look rather striking. Uh-huh, Yeah. And it's Odin, spelled O-D-E-N. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Odin, okay. We've got uh, Damon, Novia, Odin, and... Next up is Ruby. And she is a nine-month-old hound border collie mix. A spayed female, full of fun, lots of energy, looking for a family that can keep up with her. We'll take her for regular walks and... Uh, she can run outside, maybe catch some Frisbees. So uh, Ruby is a cute young dog ready to find a wonderful family. It's very pretty with the, with the brown and the black and the white on the face. That's just that's mm -hmm. a nice-looking dog. And uh, I, I'm wondering, Scott, do you feel a song coming on here? <laughs> uh, is it uh, Tuesday? Oh, that's one of them, yeah, certainly. Also, there's there's Ruby. Don't take your love to town. Okay, I missed that one. <laughs> so we have two songs for this dog. So we've got uh, great dogs. Ruby with the uh, song titles there kind of coming to mind. Odin, Damon, and Novia, and uh, they're open today and tomorrow to see these cool dogs. Yeah. Charlie, what are the hours open? We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, I hope, I hope you have a pleasant day there. Stay warm, and thank you so much for all the great work you do helping people connect with dogs and cats for adoption and other critters. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Shirley, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. The Capital Humane Society, they're open today and tomorrow. Okay, Jim, we've got um, our main guest coming up, mm -hmm. uh, Paul Blake-Smith. He's been on before uh, with the MO41. That was a book about the uh, UFO crash in Missouri in 1941. MO41, subtitled The Bombshell Before Roswell. And uh, a follow-up book that talked a lot about that. Yeah, that um, was uh, around Cape Girardeau, wasn't it? Yes. If I remember correctly, yeah. Uh, three Presidents, Two Accidents. It also had more information about that. And this is a book he's been working on for many, many years. And it runs in excess of 430 pages. And uh, looks, looks uh, That's an inch, inch and a quarter thick, isn't it? It's a substantial book. Yeah. It's uh, as you get into it, it becomes just engaging, engrossing, riveting. So I'm going to enjoy talking with Paul about this today. And and Scott, you actually read all the books cover to cover. 
I do. I do the best mm-hmm. I can. Uh, Absolutely. Typ- typically, I, I try to read the book uh, the week before the guest comes on. Uh, in this case, uh, this is such an interesting topic for yeah. me that I got the whole book read last night. I finished um, about one. Well, you don't know. You want to don't want to know how late I was. Here, so. <laughs> well, but, the reason I mention that is you'll hear a lot of interviewers that do the ten minute segments on a book. They they just are reading from a sheet of bullet points. Often right. they haven't actually read the book. Here we read the book. Yeah, I sh- I, I sure tr- I sure try mm-hmm. to. Um, Next week, we've got <clears throat> uh, Trish and Rob McGregor. And uh, I just noticed in my notes that I have Trish and Rob Trish McGregor. I'm going to have to correct that. Yeah. Sorry about that, Rob. Your middle name is not Trish. <laughs> Trish and Rob McGregor. Or maybe uh, it is. We don't know. Uh, Secrets of Spirit Communication, Techniques for Tuning In and Making Contact. Um, we have a first-time guest coming up December 1st. Nomar Slevic, uh, Otherworldly Encounters, Evidence of UFO Sightings and Abductions. Wow. December 8th, Dan Baldwin, Rhonda Hall, and Dwight Hall, Speaking with the Spirits of the Old Southwest, mm. Conversations with Miners, Outlaws, and Pioneers Who Still Roam Ghost Towns. Great cover art. Uh, December 15th, Dr. Linda Bachman, Souls on Earth. Exploring Interplanetary Past Lives. Wow. The 22nd, making his annual appearance, is Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne, the associate pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Uh, Prescient Dreams in the Bible. And Hope, Faith, and a Prayer or Two. And that's always a great show with, with the Reverend. There's something there for everybody. Please, please tune in. December 29th, the last show of the year. Um, she's become kind of a, a stalwart, a favorite here. Carol Fleet. Mm-hmm. And she's doing a show called A New Year, A New You. So how to make the most of, of turning that, that leaf over, that calendar page over, and making some short-term, long-term goals, uh, things that are practical for you. And uh, Carol Fleet's always so fun. And then guess who's up on the first Saturday in, oh. in the new year? Patty, maybe? That's right. Yeah. I think sure. uh, 26, 27 times so far. Our very own New Year's tradition. Yep. Patty Conklin. Uh, she's the author of a book called God Within, The Day God's Train Stopped. And she is an amazing medical intuitive. Mm-hmm. She can talk to people long distance and uh, dive into their energy pattern, if you will, right through the phone and diagnose uh, conditions, uh, mental, emotional, physical, things that are going on. Um, she is somewhat amazing. And uh, in the tradition of, of uh, uh, Edgar Casey. So we've got January 12th. We've got a show on dreams. Robert Moss, Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. Dreams are one of your favorite topics, right? Yes. Yeah. Peter James Havland, he's a first-time guest on January 19th. He's a private investigator and advanced certified clinical hypnotherapist. He's got 33 years in the business of parapsychology and forensic hypnosis. I'll be interested to find out yeah. what forensic hypnosis is. <laughs> Maybe he can hypnotize <laughs> us over the air. Um. 
January 26th, Dave Spinks, um, West Virginia Bigfoot. Mm. So we're now booking uh, shows in February and March. Cool. 2019. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be here because I've already seen the calendars. They printed the calendars, so... Uh, Lloyd Arbach is normally with us uh, during this time period on the third Saturday, but he won't be here today because he's uh, doing uh, in Durham, North Carolina, a uh, workshop. He did a lecture last night and a workshop today. And uh, Mm -hmm. I believe the lecture last night was uh, how to choose a psychic medium. And the lecture today is um, tips for better ghost hunting, how to up your game, um, and this is from the gentleman that people called Professor Paranormal. So uh, Lloyd, L-O-Y-D, Auerbach, A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. I think if you go to his Facebook page, um, you'll be able to find the link. And you can actually listen in um, uh, to the uh, workshop today. <clears throat> Great I, stuff. I also gave the link to on my Facebook page as well as the, the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Facebook page. If you haven't discovered us there, you might want to do that. That's a fun, very dynamic page. Uh, we usually have all the, the guest information there for each show, and there's always uh, posts uh, being done during the week. A, a variety of posts. Yeah. I see you've been posting the space weather stuff lately. That's uh, that's really cool. Speaking of which, why is this a special weekend? Leonid meteor shower. Leonid. Leonid. Coming uh, appearing to radiate from the constellation of Leo, and uh, that's a, f- a particular favorite of ham radio operators because it's a favorite to try and do what's called meteor scatter communication. And I've and I've done it. We actually bounce radio signals off the ionized trails left by meteors. And who gets them then? Other hams. Okay. Yeah. And how can you tell that they bounce off the trails? Uh, it's it's uh, the type of echo. It's a really short echo. It's like uh, flipping a switch on and off. It's there and then it's gone. So you've got to exchange your information really quickly. And, One uh, word sentences. Uh, yeah. And for those uh, those hams lucky enough to have directional antennas, you can tell from the direction in, in which the echoes are coming also that it's part of the meteor shower and this this happens all the time it's it's just uh, a lot easier to do during the active showers is it true that that you've actually talked to or had conversation with joe walsh uh, i exchanged email with joe walsh uh regard he had a question on a radio that uh he actually saw me make a post about in an online forum so here out of the out of the blue comes this email from joe walsh asking me about this modification to a radio and uh, it was it was just it was pretty cool you know for many years he is such a great guitar player i'm currently uh, teaching a song right now called please come home for christmas mm-hmm. by the eagles that he's got a great guitar solo in but he is such a funny guy he just he breaks me up for many years when he would write a check and the memo part of the check he would write Underwear rental. <laughs> Underwear rental. Uh, yeah, Joe is a frequent guest on uh, a couple of ham radio uh, video type podcasts. I think Ham Nation is one of them, and uh, has been an avid ham radio operator yeah. since he was a teenager, and uh, just just a fun guy. Yeah, have you ever had a, a, a conversation with anybody that's been 
very, very weird where uh, on, on the ham radio, they've said that they are an alien. I have not had that happen. Um, have you had a chance to talk to anybody who is actually deceased and coming through the ham radio? No, I haven't had that happen either, although I've been, been watching for signals from our, our dearly departed uh, friend Jerry Cohn, who is uh, a Lincoln resident and an avid Morse code operator, and I keep listening to those signals and the noise, wondering if I'll hear him someday. Mm-hmm. And when you when you fire up your unit, you know back in the old days, uh, before they had TVs with really good filters, you could always tell when there was a ham in the neighborhood because all of a sudden your TV would have static. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yep, that's the neighbor down <laughs> the street. Uh, he just kicked on his. Uh huh. That was a challenge back in the day, and uh, not so much now with most people being on cable te- television. And uh, with digital television, if you have a signal drop out, you don't know why. Yeah. It just, there or it isn't. So So if you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, which you are, and you kick on, what's the range of how far can you go? Uh, It depends on the frequency band that you're operating in. Uh, VHF, UHF, and higher is pretty much local line of sight communications only. On shortwave, I've literally talked to the other side of the world. And uh, the guys with big antennas can actually bounce signals off the moon and make contact with each other that way. And so when you're talking on shortwave with the other side of the world, how is that signal getting around there? It's, uh, is it because the Earth is flat? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the secret, actually. <laughs> uh, now, it's, uh, we call it uh, skip, where the ionosphere okay. actually refracts the signal and, and bends it back down towards the Earth. And this can happen two or three times. We call it multiple hop. And that's how our signals travel around the world. So is there a delay when that happens? There's a little bit of delay. It's not usually noticeable, but there have been instances. I I think a lot of us have experienced that, Uh, especially if you're using Morse code. You have that little bit of an interval between the characters. Sometimes you can hear your own signal faintly come back around the world to you. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cool. So uh, you learn Morse code. I learned that back in Boy yeah, Scouts. Yeah. And it's it's not a requirement to get a license now. It hasn't been for several years. So uh, there's actually been an upswing in Morse code activity over recent years because people are finding out that it's actually fun now that it's not something you have to do. Uh, recently, the last of the uh, code talkers, the Navajo code mm-hmm. talkers, just passed away. Yeah, and these were guys that were pretty incredible. In World War II, they were in communications in uh, several theaters, and uh, our adversaries couldn't break the code because they were talking yeah, uh, in uh, Navajo. That was that was fun. That's pretty cool. Yep. Um, so uh, things are going well for you. Things are going well. Uh, next Thursday is Thanksgiving. It is, and uh, Jim's going to join uh, our table for uh, dinner. And uh, we wish all you folks out there also a a wonderful Thanksgiving. It can be a stressful time because uh, sometimes you're around, and this is not aimed at Jim, but you're around people that you don't normally see in your family, and Mm -hmm. you may not uh, uh, get along with all that well. So it's a time that uh, people get together and hopefully see through some of those uh, differences and enjoy the, uh, the feast, 
uh, remembering why they're together as a family, yeah. a table of friends, and uh, just being grateful and feeling blessed for the day. Um, there are so many reasons to to kind of change one's outlook, if you will, and look at things yeah. not so much through um, rose-colored glasses in a shallow way, but to actually have a practice that says, you know, I'm just, I'm really glad to be here. I'm grateful uh, for what I've got. And I may not have everything that I want, but just think of all the things <laughs> that I don't have uh-huh. that I wouldn't like right now, too. So, And I would just offer that uh, leave the politics at home on that day. It's probably not a day to talk politics in today's climate. Just, you know, there's 364 other days in the year for that. Just uh, leave it at home. Yeah, there's a Facebook meme going around of, of a... Of a Character saying that he's going to save a lot on Christmas gifts this year. I guess he's <laughs> wow. going to he's going to bring politics up at the Thanksgiving table. That's a little harsh. Yeah. <laughs> so again, we celebrate Thanksgiving, uh, and it, we extend from us, uh, Colleen and Jim and I, to you folks out there and your families, um, a wonder-filled, a happy Thanksgiving next Thursday, and we hope you have um, a day that memories are made from. I'm Scott Colborn. Let's take our bottom of the hour break. We'll be back with our main guest, Paul Blake Smith. This is the brand new book that um, if it had a hardcover on it, you could use this as a doorstop. This Mm -hmm. thing is massive, uh, 430 some pages. It's called JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot, the explosive new theory of Oswald and DC. Uh, November 22nd, 1963 was the date that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, those of you out there old enough know exactly where you were that day and what was going on. So it's a day that continues to live in, in many of us. We'll be talking today with Paul Blake Smith, this brand new book. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim. We're enjoying the Sumatra coffee. Melissa Colborn, thank you for the birthday gift. And we'll be right back after this. dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from the Nebraska Recycling Council helping to protect the natural environment and extend the life of our landfill. Reminding Lincoln and Lancaster County that corrugated cardboard will not be accepted at the landfill. For more on recycling services and area drop-off sites, nrcne.org or 402-436-2384. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model back. 
My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Music from the band Enigma from Cobalt. People will ask us who that background music is. Who's the who's the theme artist? Who do we play in the on the show? This is the band Enigma and uh, the Ultimate Acoustic Duo. They are in Southeast Nebraska. They play all over Southeast Nebraska, and uh, that's one of my favorite tunes from Cobalt called Sky Dancer. Jim Shorty is with us. Uh, Colleen Newholly won't be here today. We send our best to her. And Colleen, we hope to see you and, and Renee next Thursday for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your strategy for Thanksgiving? Do you, uh, when you've got that big meal, do you, do you eat light the day before? Do you eat regular? Um, I generally try to eat light. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll skip breakfast entirely on that day usually. Maybe just have a small snack. Uh-huh. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. I've looked at the menu, and I've already made my complaint to the place we're going to have dinner that they don't have cold-boiled shrimp this no. year for an appetizer. That's always been a, a big draw for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, I will suffer and make do. So we're going to have a, a great time. It's going to be again, a lot of fun. We send our best out to everybody uh, that we hope that you have a memorable and wonderful Thanksgiving as well. We've got our special friend and guest, Paul Blake Smith, with us. Uh, Paul's been on the program a number of times, and uh, I didn't mean to short him because I only referenced four books, and then I realized this morning after I'd printed this that it's actually five books now that he's got out. So uh, I haven't written one yet, and he's got five out, and he's probably got a couple more in the works here. Uh, The brand-new book that just came out in October... It's called JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot, The Explosive New Theory of Oswald in D.C. So he's the author of four previous books, two nonfiction and two part fiction, part fact novels. 
all available from Argus Publishing. He first wrote about President Kennedy within 2016's Three Presidents, Two Accidents book. After many years of nonfiction research, JFK and the Willard Hotel plot is Paul's first full-length book on the fascinating John F. Kennedy assassination. He was a four-year mass communications major with an English minor at Southeast Missouri State University in his hometown of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. He currently lives in the southwestern part of the Show Me State, and he's been a guest on many radio and podcast programs. His book, uh, MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, was also featured in a 2016 episode of the History Channel's Ancient Aliens. And uh, that was a really interesting book that I really enjoyed reading because it, it sets that, that uh, time mark back. <clears throat> Things just didn't start with Roswell. Uh, they started a lot earlier. So our special guest is Paul Blake Smith. And Paul, I imagine we are talking to you from someplace in Missouri, am I correct? That is correct. Uh, an undisclosed location also known as Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> Springfield's cool. I, I like that town. I used to have family in Springfield. Oh, good. Yeah, they did back in the, uh, the I want to say the 80s and 90s, they did a UFO conference there. That hmm. Because of the location, I always went down and attended. John Carpenter was one of the people that helped put that on there. So many good memories of Springfield. Um. What a book, Paul. So I'm sitting at my computer last night, and I've got my cup of coffee, and I'm reading the book, and I'm reading, and it got to be uh, fairly late, and I turned over the last page. So congratulations on this massive book. I thank you. I was at work on this over a decade ago, mm -hmm. and it just was not coming together. So I put it aside to write the book the two books on the Cape Girardeau UFO crash, which, since that was my hometown. And then I recently uh, found more documents released that confirm my suspicions, and I was able to complete my theory in my book, and I'm glad that uh, you enjoyed it. Give us a thumbnail sketch. Um, in fact, before you do, tell me, what were you doing if you were born then, Paul, on November 22nd, 1963? Probably having a nap in my crib since I was nine months old. Uh, my mother tells me she was watching her favorite soap opera, As the World Turns, when Walter Cronkite came on with a special news bulletin. And at first, uh, they were sketchy reports that the president had simply been shot. And then uh, maybe within the hour, mm -hmm. uh, the news came forward that he was dead. And, of course, the whole nation was turning to the television and radio in those days, just absolutely riveted for the next three days of the uh, assassination weekend, we call it now. Mm -hmm. as, as you uh, grew up, you said that you began working on this book over 10 years ago. What was it about that event that has been so compelling for you as an author and researcher? I think, like for many millions of Americans the answers that we were given by the government just did not ring true. Magazine articles began to appear in the 1970s, and the House Select Committee was formed because the answers just uh, were not adequate. 
uh, it was looking more and more like Oswald was not working alone. And after the uh, three or four years of the select committee for the House investigated the case with more time and money and effort, they found that Oswald did have help, that it was a probable conspiracy, and they were supposed to turn the case over to the Justice Department, and nothing's been done since. But there's been a lot of uh, documentaries and books since, uh, probably a couple hundred books on the Kennedy assassination. And I think I have something new and original that people have overlooked previously. It's rather astounding, actually, uh, when we put together all the clues, which I try to do in a, uh, the first chapter, why I feel Lee Harvey Oswald did not make his first attempt to shoot President Kennedy in Dallas, but he originally was going to shoot at JFK in an open car motorcade in Washington, D.C. on October 1st. But obviously that fell through. Mm-hmm. Now, I was uh, in sixth grade, I think it was Mrs. Sutton's class at Merle Beatty Grade School, uh, when um, somebody came in and told Mrs. Sutton that, and then she announced to the class that uh, President Kennedy had, had been uh, assassinated. Uh, as I got older, uh, you mentioned a number of the books written on the subject. I read some of those and began to immediately sense that there was a lot more to the story than what we were given through the original Warren report and some subsequent findings. Um, right. You mentioned in your book the columnist and investigative journalist Jack Anderson. I remember a special parade magazine that was a insert that came in the Sunday paper here in Lincoln, Nebraska, a special uh, a story that he did where it showed a picture of the grassy knoll and showed a guy standing there, um, and it was very clear that he was holding a rifle. Uh, yes, that, that was probably the Mary Mormon photograph. I, I don't remember the, the attribution, Paul. Uh, she was standing on Elm Street taking a picture of JFK and his motorcade when it passed, uh, a black and white, uh, like uh, Kodak or Polaroid mm-hmm. camera at the time. Mm-hmm. And only uh, like a decade later were they able to blow it up and clarify it, and it shows what appears to be a man standing behind the fence holding a rifle aiming it right at the president, possibly with a bit of uh, gun smoke, as they call it, at the end of the rifle, obscuring uh, a little bit of the photograph. And it's kind of chilling, quite frankly, when they clarify it and colorize the photo. Mm -hmm. We have um, so many reports of eyewitnesses that heard uh, multiple uh, guns going off. Right. And the reports were from different directions. Uh, We know that, uh, and we're going to talk about this, how the president was uh, shot in various places, how bullets uh, came into that vehicle. Uh, And it's amazing that there are still people that believe that Lee Harvey Oswald uh, from the Dallas Book Depository building, uh, aiming out the window, did all that work with just that that rifle that he had. That's Uh, correct. There were at least 15 to 20, I, I read various estimates, of eyewitnesses on the ground who said 
they heard at least one shot from the knoll from behind that fence, and all of them were not taken before the Warren Commission in Washington. Their testimony was uh, either ignored, uh, but basically they weren't even asked to testify. They uh, they talked to a newspaper at the time or uh, tried to talk to police, and they were basically just uh, told, yeah, that's interesting, but we've got our man, mm-hmm. Lee Oswald, firing from behind. So I don't know if you want to talk about the the theory that you've got first, or if you want to talk about the actual assassination. Well, the assassination is uh, so uh, commonly known, at least by younger generations. Now we're 55 years uh, away from the actual event. Uh, Some people may not be all that familiar, so we'll just mention that Lee Harvey Oswald was uh, captured. He was arrested that afternoon in a movie theater. He was asked to stand up so they could frisk him. Police officers had been called because he was suspicious in his behavior. So they went into the theater, and uh, they simply asked him politely, could you stand up, sir? Oswald went berserk and tried to uh, assault the police officers. Then he pulled out a pistol and tried to shoot them. He tried to murder them in a movie theater. So this gives you a strong indication that Oswald was guilty, that uh, he did not want to be arrested, uh, you don't uh, act this way if you're an innocent man and you had nothing to do with the assassination. So we can conclude that Oswald did indeed take his rifle and a brown paper parcel to work that morning and that uh, he put it together and oiled it up and uh, loaded it right there in the morning when no one was looking on the sixth floor, which was largely deserted. And he probably had one or two uh, helpers with him. A couple of eyewitnesses said they saw one or two men in that window with him uh, just prior to the shooting, and that he left the building within a few minutes of the shooting, about the only man who did, and took off across town where he encountered a police officer named J.D. Tippett, and eyewitnesses were very clear. They said later Oswald was the man who shot Officer Tippett, who pulled him over and just said, you know, can we talk about this? You look exactly like the suspect over the radio in the Kennedy shooting. So we can be assured now that Lee Harvey Oswald was at least part of something, most likely shooting at JFK, and he was guilty. But where did this uh, kill shot, if you will, come from? And so many eyewitnesses said it came from in front. Oswald's three shots were fired from behind. So we have an unresolved case. And if uh, that is the matter, then it's still worthy of inspecting, reviewing, and going over government documents, Mm -hmm. as I've tried to do, and so many other researchers, and uh, worthy of documentaries you see on TV and on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Um, The car that he was riding in, there was a uh, shot that came through the front window shield. Right. And that's the shot that... and. I'm sure that you're aware of, of the nature of, of our audience, Paul, so we're not going to be graphic about describing his wounds. Um, right. They were grievous. Um, he was first shot through the uh, front window shield of this car, and uh, the bullet uh, uh, hit him right above his necktie in the throat. So the, the, the window was inspected, and found that uh, it was an entry, it was not an exit. So now we're looking at somebody that is in front of the car, firing um, at a slight elevation, 
into that car, and that would not be Lee Harvey Oswald up on the sixth floor of a building. That's correct. Uh, so many witnesses said they saw that bullet hole. The, uh, the Secret Service tried to uh, hustle that car away from uh, people who were gathered around it at Parkland Hospital, parked outside the emergency ward. A woman who is very familiar with uh, firearms said, I walked right up and, and filled the bullet hole. It was clearly from front to back, and it was likely the shot that hit President Kennedy in the throat and caused him to start gagging forward uh, when he was assaulted by a flurry of gunshots, is what a Secret Service agent said who was in the car at the time. And it wasn't just uh, three shots from behind. So uh, there we have at least a second shooter, and then there's the one on the knoll, which would have created a triangulation of crossfire, which was spoken of by uh, David Ferry, as you see in the movie JFK by Oliver Stone in 1991. The plan was formulated in New Orleans, during the summer of 63, and uh, Ferry talked openly about the importance of having alibis at the time of the shooting and using a triangulation of crossfire, which he originally said was going to be for Washington, D.C. So uh, there's another clue for us that uh, this was not the first attempt put together, but it was the successful one in Dealey Plaza. Mm-hmm. This is Paul Blake Smith and... Uh his book was just released in October. It's called JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot, The Explosive New Theory of Oswald in D.C. Uh, a colleague mentioned to me years ago that he knew of Gordon Novell and that Gordon claimed to have been involved in the Kennedy assassination. Did that name come up for you in, in your research? Uh, just barely. It, it barely rings a bell. Uh, there's been a lot of people, frankly, who claim they've been involved sure. or that they know something, and so many of them have turned out to be uh, hoaxes and frauds. So that kind of muddied up the waters, didn't it? Yep. So we've got um, an incredible event, and... Uh, when and Paul goes through this very meticulously too. He talks about the the route, how things are planned in advance, um, people that are very very knowledgeable uh, about the route. They will make sure that the car doesn't do things like have to stop and or negotiate a very sharp turn, uh, which slows the vehicle down and makes the the occupants then basically uh, easy targets for anybody shooting in. So that all went out the window in Dallas, Texas. It did uh, a few days before JFK's uh, uh, November 22nd motorcade through Dallas. He went to Tampa, Florida, and there was a strange, slow, sharp turn in front of the Grand Floridian Hotel, which would have been nearly impossible for the Secret Service to guard. And there were articles appearing in the paper later that said there was an assassination plot, rumors of this in Tampa, uh, November 18th of 63, but it was uh, thwarted and President Kennedy was taken through a motorcade right past this hotel safely and successfully. But it gives us another clue that part of the planning for the assassination was to uh, wait for him 
to go through a sharp turn and slow the car down near a tall building. And uh, that's where we get to the Willard Hotel in Washington. Mm-hmm. Paul, you believe, based upon your research and the material that you studied, that this, in effect, was an inside job in that people within our government and or military were part of this assassination in some way. They may not have been the people pulling the triggers, but there were people on the inside involved in this. I find that very possible. Certainly one man in particular within the Secret Service who knew JFK and knew of his uh, privately rather reckless and promiscuous behavior and probably thought it might be for the best if this, if this mafia plan to get rid of him was taken care of uh, efficiently and covered up. And I think that's what happened. And w- would that be uh, Agent Perry? That's uh, the name that I give him, yes. In, mm-hmm. the, uh, in the book, I give him a, a pseudonym. I, don't, I could have named him, but I decided not to, even though he's been passed away for years. He set the motorcade route. And he stripped away security, and everyone followed his orders. JFK was left hideously unguarded in Dallas, which was known to be a very hostile city, very dangerous uh, with previous uh, incidents against political figures there. And you've, you've got this, this specter also of J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI that prior to November 22, 1963, they are getting... Um, reports of threats, and you write that Hoover did all but just squelch these. Right. Uh, Uh, He had a top hoodlum surveillance program going on. They were watching uh, and listening to uh, syndicate hoodlums like Giancana and Marcello and Traficante, and there was considerable talk amongst those circles about getting rid of Kennedy about shooting him at a public uh, parade, a motorcade. Uh, a, a gangster named Big Jim Elkins from Oregon passed along to Bobby Kennedy. He was an inside informant in the summer of 63. Uh, information that the mafia was planning to shoot the president in a motorcade if they could get him uh, out in the open and uh, vulnerable without anyone else getting hurt, and that uh, security was stepped up in most of JFK's motorcades in 63, but it was curiously not in Washington, D.C., around his car, and around his car again in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an amazing story, um, uh, killing Kennedy. And you list in your book some reasons why. Uh, when JFK became president and his brother, uh, Robert Kennedy, was, I believe, the head of the Justice Department, they went after organized crime. The, With a vengeance. <laughs> the, the arrests and percentages of cases being tried went up astronomically. Right. So these two men, by their actions, were causing a lot of uh, problems for, quote-unquote, business as usual for the mafia. That's correct, especially Carlos Marcello, who was personally offended when he was abducted and thrown into a Guatemala jungle uh, by agents of the Justice Department working for Robert Kennedy. He was absolutely livid by all accounts. 
So they, they feel like they, they felt rather like they had a score to settle and that they had to get this guy uh, out of there. Um, right. The original target was probably, undoubtedly, really, Robert F. Kennedy, head of the War on Organized Crime in the Justice Department, who had Marcello abducted and thrown out of the country. Uh, he fell down a ravine and broke his leg and was all scraped up uh, in Guatemala and vowed complete revenge on the Kennedys. But they realized that if they shot and killed Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, uh, the president would simply appoint uh, an even more uh, rabid and determined attorney general, and they would go after the mob wherever they were, even including using the American military to hunt them down. So the target became instead President Kennedy. Uh, it was an engrossing book, simply uh, mesmerizing as you read about as these events were unfolding. And, uh, Paul, at times, as a reader, I'm shaking my head, wondering why didn't other people see all these things coming together to be able to stop this. Uh, when I come back from the break here, Paul, I've got the book uh, open and um, I'd like to go through and talk about some of the ways that Dallas was affected in terms of how to set things up so that there would be maximum firepower and some of the parade route, et cetera. So you've got step one that starts on page 226, and we'll kind of talk about some of these things. Uh, all these things taken together, when you look at these, if you were able to put these on a piece of paper and then see these things that were done, you'd say to yourself immediately, <laughs> somebody was trying to set up Dallas to be a, a killing zone. And just, incre right. just incredible. So, Paul, stay right there. We'll take the top of the hour break, and we'll be back. And... Uh, my friend, I'm enjoying the coffee this morning because you and your book kept me up really late last night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the brand new book by Paul Blake Smith is called JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot, the explosive new theory of Oswald in D.C. And you'll find Paul Blake Smith on Facebook. His publisher is Argus. A-R-G-U-S, Argus Books. And you'll also find the book JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot on Amazon. I'm Scott Colborne with Jim Shorty. And you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. What a fascinating show. Stay tuned for more. Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim Shorty's here. And Jim, you've been going uh, online and looking at some of this information. Yeah, the uh, the Facebook page, uh, JFK and the Willard Hotel plot. Okay. it's uh, There's a lot of st- the, the stuff that you two have been talking about are on this page, along with uh, lots of photos that I haven't seen before and whatnot. I'm glad that you mentioned it's, that. We'll uh, point people towards that. Yeah, it's really great stuff. It's the Facebook page, um, the same as the book title, JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot. Okay, Paul, so I've got the book open here to page 226, and this is a chapter where uh, Trip Planner Perry... That's the anacronym that you give this Secret Service agent. So he did a lot of the planning and layout for these motorcades. Um, Dallas was very unusual. Step number one, cancel military assistance. That's correct. Uh, The U.S. Army down in Texas uh, was told they would not be needed for uh, helping out with motorcade security. Fort Sam Houston, the base leader, was called and told uh, at least once or twice uh, to please stand down. We don't need your help. It's just not necessary in Dallas. And uh, incredibly, the Sheriff's Department of Dallas was also called and told, stand down. You're just to be spectators at the parade. (laughs) It's just incredible when you look back and find out this information later. So... uh, Somebody, they needed all the help they could get, really. Instead, they got almost no help. Yeah, somebody, uh, we believe it's Perry, somebody calls the sheriff's department in Dallas and says, yeah, we're going to have the motorcade there, but we're not going to be able to use you guys. Just stand down, just be spectators, and uh, no problem. Uh, and this is despite the fact that they're getting what are believed to be credible threat reports about Dallas. My, right. my God. Okay, step three, cut out the press spokesman. Now, what was that Pierre about? Salinger, yeah. He, was, he would normally travel in the motorcade uh, with the president or very close by. Uh, he was told, we don't need your help in setting up security. Uh, you won't be uh, going to the parade, and we don't need your assistance in any protection pl- planning for Dallas. And he says this was completely unprecedented. So step number four, eliminate close press coverage. And so it was, if, 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 if you, the listeners, can suspend total judgment just for a moment and agree that there was a conspiracy, then 
if you're in agreement, what you'd want to do would be to try to keep the press out of that immediate area so that there weren't credible witnesses, uh, news media present. And so how did that happen? There's almost always a flatbed truck or a large convertible that would travel just ahead of JFK's uh, open car convertible in a motorcade. Uh, this was even done in Washington, D.C. on October 1st. You, I've seen the film footage, <clears throat> but this was not done in Dallas. Uh, naturally, at first, it was moved uh, too far back into the parade, and they were put into a bus, and they had almost no clue what was going on. They were so far back in the motorcade when shots were fired. They wondered at first, are those shots or firecrackers going off? So that's another clue that uh, you had to keep those who could capture the actual event uh, away from the assassination, and it was effectively done. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned, I think, an important part of October 1st, that uh, near the Willard Hotel in D.C., um, this mobile press pool was, in fact, in front of the limousine with uh, Emperor Haile Selassie and President John F. Kennedy. And you believe, and others believe, that that may have played a role then in saving the president's life that day because uh, the media was right there in the car ahead. They were right. turned around, they uh, were filming, they were yeah. filming the crowd, you know, lots of eyes looking around. That's correct. Oswald was seen at the Willard Hotel right next to the parade route a few days before the motorcade, and that this uh, motorcade did happen with JFK in the back seat of his uh, familiar convertible limousine with Haile Selassie. Their wives were not allowed in the car, and a translator who was normally supposed to be there between the two men was also not allowed in the back of that car on October 1st. Uh, in Dallas, Jackie was allowed in the car, and so was uh, Governor Connolly and his wife Nellie. However, there was no press coverage allowed, and uh, there was a very thin, sparse uh, crowd in Dealey Plaza. It was like the, the back leg of the uh, motorcade route where um, very little attention was going to be paid. It was mm -hmm. just absolutely perfect to uh, assault the president and get away with it without witnesses. Step number five, cut back on police motorcycle protection. Normally you would see a number of uh, motorcycle cops surrounding in a V formation the president's mm -hmm. entire limousine. Mm -hmm. This was not done in Washington, D.C. at all. And in Dallas, they cut it back to uh, just two motorcyclists on either side of the limo who were not allowed to pass the, bas the back bumper, leaving the com president completely exposed and open from in front. Uh, number six, scale back police on foot. Yes, you can see cops on Houston Street lining the street just before you get to Dallas. But there are no policemen on the ground, on the sidewalk or the street in Dealey Plaza. So, uh, you know, once again, it was a dangerous area with a lot of shade trees up on the knoll and picket fences and uh, uh, tall buildings. And yet you didn't put any police on the ground or any cops on motorcycles around the car. Uh, uh, a FBI agent named Hostie, James Hostie, 
uh, interviewed Lee Oswald when he was captured after the assassination. Hosty said he went to the uh, parade and watched as JFK rode by, and he was astounded and appalled at the lack of security. Anyone could have walked right up to him and touched him or shot him, quite frankly. He was that left open and vulnerable on purpose in Dallas. Yeah, no Dallas policemen were stationed in Dealey Plaza around the corner on Elm Street. Um, uh, there were a couple up on the overpass bridge, I'll, I'll point out, in all fairness, but uh, they uh, were simply looking at the uh, parade and uh, a couple of um, about eight or nine uh, railroad workers who wandered over. They were not supposed to be allowed up on the overpass bridge, and there was another violation that day. Um and you learned, apparently, policemen on the motorcade route in Dallas were given orders to turn their backs to the crowd and face the opposite way. Right. I got a lot of my information from a very fine researcher named Vincent Palamara, who's a Secret Service uh, expert. He's a civilian, but he's uh, interviewed all of these people and done several books on this subject talking about uh, his great astonishment at learning the incredibly backwards and uh, ridiculously uh, exposed uh, so-called protection the president received in Dallas and how uh, some cops were told unprecedented that when you were on the route, face the opposite way that you normally would in protecting the president. My God. Uh, The day before the event, the Dallas police were instructed to remove one of their own vehicles set to be filled with sharp-eyed homicide detectives and take him out of the parade entirely. That's right. They were told, uh, well, we don't need you. You won't be necessary. <laughs> oh, uh, this would have been a very key uh, event or a key uh, factor to remove uh, experienced homicide detectives and cops who would have been on the uh, lookout for anyone who was dangerous. And they were told, uh, you stay home. <laughs> Um, there was a, um, a November 23rd, 63 newspaper article how normally hundreds of police and fire department personnel in major cities were employed during past JFK visits keeping a watch. Right. Uh, quote, unquote, they were expert marksmen armed with rifles on the roofs of buildings, watching the crowds and windows. Um, if somebody had appeared at a window with a gun, he would have been shot. So... Back in about, uh, I want to say, 1972, uh, Richard Nixon came to Lincoln, Nebraska to speak at the Coliseum. And I was one of the many demonstrators that we met at the Student Union, and we marched over. And we were not permitted to uh, enter the Coliseum, even though there were 500 seats that were empty. They wanted to keep our crowd outside. And so... Paul, I'm sitting out there with my armband, and we're chanting and carrying signs. And, Paul, I looked up on the top of the University of Nebraska buildings, and you can guess what I saw. Uh, Armed guards with rifles or Secret Service men in uh, uh, plainclothes suits with rifles on the lookout for any potential sniper. Is that correct? Yes. There were guys up there with telescopic deer rifles, uh, and they were all over the place. And so I realized that, you know, I didn't probably want to throw a snowball. I I didn't want to do that at all. Uh, And this was not present in Dallas. That's correct. 
This is another shocker that uh, normally these were employed in 1963 motorcades for the president. Uh, you would see them even in some existing photographs in other cities. But in Dallas, they were told to stand down. We don't need you. And another factor was often the Secret Service would take a helicopter over the route. This was also not done specifically in Dallas. Uh, nobody, according in your book, uh, uh, seems to recall anybody asking the Texas State Highway Patrol or the Texas Rangers to be contacted and asked to participate, either in That's uniform right. or in plain clothes. That's correct. And also, uh, real quick for folks listening today, there was no live television coverage of this event. Uh, it seems hard to believe, but uh, the president was whisked through town, and I should imagine that um, there was like maybe a radio commentator here or there, but they just described the action, and it was not shown on live television anywhere. Uh, number seven, cancel all agents walking by the car. Yes, the Secret Service was told specifically, we don't need you to walk next to the car. Come on back to the follow-up car. And you can see some footage to this day of agents throwing up their hands in disgust as they left the airport. They started to jog next to the car as they normally would do. And a Secret Service shift agent named Emery Roberts calls them back and says, we don't need you get away from the car. So the entire route, there were no agents allowed to stand on the back uh, railing of the car or on the sides or to jog along the car and touch it. They were to keep away from the car. And it's, once again, it, it just astounds you at how badly the president was left out in the open. So the Zabruder film you write in the book shows that you could have put a pair of semis in the space immediately in front of the pre uh, presidential convertible. Right, yeah, there it, was a huge gap. Totally open. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just uh, astounding when you realize that in other parades, and you see the photographs and the footage, this is done, he's carefully uh, surrounded so badly you can almost not see President Kennedy because he's got so much security. In Dallas, he was left amazingly wide open. Uh, step number eight, <clears throat> if, if you were wanting to organize a... Um, uh, triangulation of fire, an assassination location. Step number eight, order all agents off the back of the car. Right. So they were told to remain inside the follow-up car and to not touch the limousine. Uh, this limousine was fitted with twin uh, rear footboards and handrails. Right. And so I've seen uh, lots of, of parade route footage where you can see agents that are standing there on those footrails holding on to the handrails. That's correct. And looking around very carefully, uh, many of the Secret Service agents were unfortunately out drinking at a nightclub or a bar until 3 or even 4 in the morning, and the parade began around noon. So many of them were hungover, or their reactions were slow, and only one agent, Clint Hill, broke the directive to stay away from the car. He rushed up onto the uh, the back footrail a couple times briefly during the parade and then stepped back to the convertible that the, was the, the Secret Service were riding in. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you see him in photographs rushing to the First Lady's aid. That was his uh, assignment. Uh, Clint Hill was assigned to the First Lady 
when she crawled out onto the back of the car to try to retrieve a piece of the president's skull that had come off the back of the president's head from the frontal shot. So that's why you see only one agent react. Uh, so many of them had violated their own rules by being out uh, consuming a great deal of alcohol just hours before the event. So uh, Agent Hill said in subsequent interviews, uh, and again, we're not going to go into the graphic nature, but that he saw clearly the large wound in the back of John F. Kennedy's head, indicating again a shot from the front. That's correct. How are we going to do a bullet that comes down from the sixth floor and somehow that bullet then does a hairpin curve and comes in from the front? We can't. Uh, we can't, and we don't want to get too graphic again. But a, a bullet wound always goes in small and comes out uh, very large. So it simply cannot be an entry wound to the back of the president's head. It would have uh, created a very large exit wound in the front of his skull, and that simply did not happen in all eyewitness accounts and in photographs at the autopsy. Dallas FBI agent James Hostey said later that he stood and watched the motorcade roll past him and that he was shocked at how exposed the president was and the total lack of, of security around him. Right. Um, step nine, remove the physician and military advisor from the car. The president's personal physician almost always rode with him or very close by. He was relegated to very far back in the motorcade by sudden changes uh, as they left the airport. Uh, there were new directives given, and uh, the vice admiral... Uh, Berkeley was uh, removed as an eyewitness who might have been able to help uh, the president if he had been uh, shot and the motor or the uh, convertible had gotten out of Dealey Plaza faster. Unfortunately, the driver, a Secret Service agent, braked and slowed, God thinking he was driving into uh, you know uh, an ambush from in front, is what he said. So he slowed. He didn't know quite what to do, and then he gunned the car out of there. Of course, much too late. So uh, he slowed, and I'm going to just conjecture here, because of that first shot that came through the front window of the car. Right. And that's probably uh, why he thought there was trouble up ahead. Incredibly, uh, the president's two aides, uh, O'Donnell and Powers, were riding also with the Secret Service in the follow-up car behind, and they said they heard shots from in front, from perhaps the overpass of the knoll, and that they were approached by the FBI and said, uh, we need you to say those shots were from the rear when you testified to the Warren Commission. So they changed their uh, testimony, and they kind of fudged the truth because they were asked to by the government who wanted to get this case wrapped up. But they, too, saw shots coming from the front. And I think the Kennedy inner circle has uh, told uh, a few people over the years, they've leaked, that the Kennedy insiders believe that the president was shot by a conspiracy and there was more than one gunman. It's pretty darn obvious. And that's what even Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says mm -hmm. in a book to this day. Step number 10, cancel extra Secret Service security measures. So we've talked about, you know, no helicopter. Let's cancel that. Right. Um, uh, agent no rooftop on, snipers. No rooftop snipers. Uh, no additional people uh, in the crowd. Um, no one was checking the uh, book depository when that window went open. 
They should have been uh, on the ground and have rushed up there or uh, contacted the building management to get that window shut. When Oswald leaned out with his rifle, uh, there's just no way that, in, at least in today's world, that this should have been done. And certainly back then, it was normal procedure to uh, take very good care of your president, make sure nothing ever happened. But in Dallas, all of that was stripped away. And you you then mentioned that some politicians got involved and actually physically changed the autopsy report. Uh, some politicians? Uh, there was certainly phone calls from this Agent Perry to the autopsy room talking about how they uh, uh, found a bullet in the president's car that they inspected. He inspected it personally that night in the White House garage. And the Kennedy family asked also for certain procedures to be stopped, uh, tracking the bullet wounds and such. There was some embarrassing uh, personal nature of the president's body at the time. So a lot of it was just covered up and hushed and changed uh, to change the nature of the wounds to fit with the program. And that was, from the very start, Oswald alone. Gerald Ford and Arlen Specter. Oh, yes. Uh, from the Warren Commission back in those days, uh, Gerald Ford was an obscure congressman called the CIA's best friend in Congress who helped Arlen Specter move the nature of the uh, wounds up in a drawing six inches. They were, you could see a bullet wound in the president's back clearly in all photographs and all autopsy reports. They moved this up to the back of the neck to try to account for that frontal neck wound uh, to make it sound as if uh, uh, an Oswald rifle bullet went uh, from back to front to make a, a lone assassin a, a very palatable story to the public. So that lone assassin bullet, <clears throat> according to their theory, has to enter from the back, it exits out the front, and uh, then it hits um, Governor Conley. Right, and goes through a number of dense bones in his body and embeds in his thigh without almost any damage to the bullet whatsoever. It's a ludicrous story. Uh, even people uh, in the mid-60s started to question this, and it became the, derisively called the magic bullet theory because uh, there's almost no way this could have happened. It would have been pure magic for it to have done the damage that it is alleged to have done. Vice President Lyndon Johnson and the black box or radio. He was seen leaning over in a car following uh, the, the Secret Service car behind JFK, leaning over a, a black transistor-type radio, listening into some information coming over. It was very unprecedented. Uh, they said uh, LBJ was in the backseat of this convertible, and he kept grabbing this radio and hunkering down, and some say he hunkered down extra low just before the shots were fired, uh, this is confirmed by a motorcycle cop who was in the route. He said he saw uh, Johnson duck down as if he knew what was coming. And on the White House uh, tapes, in the aftermath of the assassination, Johnson asks uh, J. Edgar Hoover, were any of them firing at me? And Hoover said, no, they were not firing at you. They were aiming directly at the president. They actually used the term they about one week after the assassination. Mm -hmm. And, of course... The official story is that it was Oswald alone. I incredible. Uh, and there is, folks, there is much more detail in, in Paul's book here. Uh, so when we come back from this bottom-of-the-hour break, 
let's now backtrack to October 1st, 1963, the Willard Hotel plot in D.C., and how that may have been, in many ways, a dry run for Dallas, November 22nd. This is Paul Blake Smith, the brand new book, JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot. I'm Scott Colborn. This will be just a little bit longer break. We'll be back then with Paul Blake Smith and more commentary. Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Next week's guests are Trish and Rob McGregor. Secrets of Spirit Communication, Techniques for Tuning In and Making Contact. Our special guest this morning is Paul Blake-Smith, and the book is JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot. Paul, in, in your research, how did you begin to focus on what may have been an earlier attempt? Um, what led you to consider the Willard Hotel and its proximity to um, the uh, uh, president's uh, mansion? Yes, we must give great credit to Tom Hartman and Lamar Waldron, who put together a couple of books uh, around 2005, 6 and 7, doing great work in exposing the mafia plan to get rid of the president, uh, Carlos Marcello in particular, and his uh, henchmen in uh, the New Orleans area, including David Ferry and Guy Bannister and their connections to Lee Oswald, and how they had been plotting to shoot the president when he went into a motorcade, and during the summer of 63, this really started to solidify, and they finally found an objective that seems to be overlooked. On May 29th of 63, the president released a White House announcement for the world. Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, is coming to America and will be given a grand state visit and a great welcome October 1st. So the mafia found out that they would have uh, JFK out in the open on a specific date, uh, probably on the White House grounds, and they knew that uh, eventually uh, a motorcade would be undertaken, and it was. So they had something to shoot for, a specific time and place. And I believe that's why we have Lee Harvey Oswald leaving New Orleans September 24th. He was seen in the state of Texas on September 25th. And then there's a missing day in his uh, schedule. And then he is seen stepping out of the Willard Hotel in Washington, and he got into it with a government employee named Bernard Thompson. He was a chauffeur for a cabinet secretary parked uh, in a no-parking zone out in front of the Willard Hotel, and Oswald got very upset, according to this four-page Treasury report that was leaked a few years ago, and it uh, fills in the clues that we know uh, otherwise that Oswald was free to travel. He was not in Mexico City, as many later came to admit. This was not Lee Harvey Oswald at the Cuban embassy in Mexico in late September. They kept saying over and over, including J. Edgar Hoover, this was an imposter. Someone is impersonating Oswald in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. So now the story is starting to make perfect sense. 
Oswald sent an impersonator to give him an alibi to make a scene at the Cuban embassy in Mexico City while he was in Washington readying to take part in this assassination plot for the mafia. There was no Texas trip announced until uh, uh, a few days later in October. No one knew JFK was going to a motorcade in the summer of 63 in Dallas. Uh, it was the plan all along to shoot him at another site. And as I mentioned, David Ferry literally said out loud a couple of times in front of witnesses, we're going to Washington, we're going to shoot him in a triangulation of crossfire there. So tell us about the Willard Hotel. Now, this is a very famous and beautiful historic hotel in Washington. It's two blocks from the White House. Uh, Abraham Lincoln stayed there to avoid assassination when he was... Uh, waiting to be inaugurated in 1860, and that uh, John Wilkes Booth was seen on the day of uh, the Lincoln assassination in the lobby by Julia Grant, U.S. Grant's uh, wife at the time. They were due to be with Lincoln at the Ford's Theater and uh, that let, uh, later that April afternoon. And so Oz, uh, Oswald, John Wilkes Booth actually... Uh, left the Willard Hotel and chased after General Grant and his wife, and they got away, and they changed their plans for the day. They did not go to Ford's Theater. They were so rattled by this. So we know that John F. Kennedy also visited the Willard Hotel in June of 63. He gave a speech there. Uh, Martin Luther King stayed in the um, Willard Hotel and wrote his uh, famous I Have a Dream speech. In August of 63, when he did the march on uh, Washington, the march at um, uh, the uh, Capitol building at the uh, Washington Monument. So uh, then, a few weeks later, we have Oswald Schilling up there. It's just uh, an incredible synchronicity of uh, famous people. Uh, even Julia Ward Howe stayed there after meeting Abraham Lincoln and wrote the theme, Battle Hymn of the Republic. She wrote that song while staying at the Willard Hotel, and the song was sung after Lincoln was shot and after JFK was shot. So there's tremendous history and spooky background at this hotel, which stands about uh, a dozen or so stories above uh, 14th Street, where the JFK motorcade was to go by. I say about 14 stories. They've got a very complex, intricate roof that's a few stories tall and uh, the building overlooks part of the White House grounds just down the street so that, in theory, someone could be up on the roof with a high-powered rifle with a scope and shoot a president if there's no foliage uh, in the way, you know, plants and trees and, and such that uh, mm -hmm. naturally protect the White House grounds. And um, was there a, a, a room up in the attic that was discovered? Uh, that would have been right next door to the White House at the Executive Office Building. Oh, thank you. A Secret Service agent said he found this and he even told JFK there's some sort of spy nest in the uh, Executive Office Building overlooking the White House and your windows and your Oval Office. Uh, it's apparent someone was in there in the summer of 63 on mattresses they found in this special room with a uh, hole carved in the wall to spy on the White House, and there were cigarette butts all over the floor as if someone was uh, stalking the president. So whether this was part of the Willard Hotel plot or, or not, I don't know, but it's certainly fascinating. It's scary, and uh, JFK was uh, uh, notified of this situation at the executive office building. Whether JFK and his administration ever found out there was a threat 
from the Willard Hotel or not, I don't know, but it's uh, fascinating to know that almost every uh, visiting dignitary got a White House South Lawn ceremony, which JFK would stand on a platform and give a speech to a good-sized crowd, and that was not done for Haile Selassie. Uh, President Kennedy and Jackie went to Union Station and greeted him there in a very tightly controlled ceremony in which they then got into uh, their convertibles and rode through town, mm-hmm. right past the Willard. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got Haile Selassie and President Kennedy. It's been publicized. Uh, we have Lee Harvey Oswald, who has shown up before this. He's been seen in and around the Willard Hotel. Do we have anybody else that uh, we could label as being shooters? That uh, Well, I it- go into my top suspects in the book, but in Washington, D.C., it's a little tougher to, to pin this down. Uh, it's possible David Ferry was there. He had talked about shooting uh, President Kennedy in Washington, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and after President Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Ferry was interviewed by the district attorney's office in New Orleans and asked about these quotes about laying in the bushes and shooting JFK at the White House. Mm-hmm. And he was questioned about this, and it was even turned over to the FBI at the time, and they just dismissed it all. So that's a possibility. Ferry was a pilot and could have easily flown from, uh, let's say, with Oswald from Dallas to Washington, D.C. on the 26th of September. And that's why you saw Mr. Oswald on the 27th, just a few days before the October 1st uh, motorcade. Mm -hmm. And um, what else about the Willard Hotel indicated to you that this was going to be either the, the actual assassination site or a dry run for something later? There was a man associated with the mafia, Carlos Marcello. He was a white, a white supremacist. His name was Joseph Adams Miltier. On November 9th of 63, just a few weeks before Dallas, he was secretly recorded in Miami talking about how there's a plan in the working to shoot President Kennedy with high-powered rifles from an office building. He said originally... The plan was we're going to get a man in a hotel room across from the White House and pick him off with a rifle. That this was a specific reference to the hotel near the White House. Uh, He didn't actually say Willard, but now we know that um, the general outline of the plan in advance. And uh, some of this information was taken down and it was scattered around that the Secret Service was eventually notified and the FBI didn't do much about it. And when they contacted Miltier, it was only after the uh, 11-22-63 assassination, and he managed to talk his way out of this, and they didn't do much about it. But he literally mentioned shooting President Kennedy from a hotel near the White House. Mm-hmm. So that's another indication of uh, Oswald having been there. This, this was a uh, very turbulent time. And that's not meant to uh, excuse any of this aberrant behavior. But I'm just trying to have the the listeners imagine the mindset of some of these people that could be openly talking about um, their dislike for the president being so intense that they were going to do something about it and uh, take the law in their own hands and kill him. Right. Uh, A lot of these people were right-wing extremists and racists affiliated with the KKK. They hated 
President Kennedy's racial equality policies. They didn't feel he was strong enough on communism, on Fidel Castro, and Oswald was a Castro fan and discovered in the summer of 63 that Kennedy was planning a reinvasion. It was all the talk of New Orleans Cuban exiles that Oswald rubbed shoulders with. So now he's got extra incentive to join the plot, especially when he had a wife, uh, a small child, and a baby on the way, and Oswald got fired from his job in New Orleans. Now he's got no income, and he's got uh, almost nowhere he can go to uh, get respect and money and uh, a plan to get out of the country like he would have received from joining this mafia plot to kill Kennedy, who was going to kill Castro. So uh, pro-Marxist, pro-Castro Oswald took action. Uh, this is a guy that was about destitute. He was living at the at the YMCA uh, in Dallas, at least for a short time. Right. And um, then a boarding house. Then he leaves. Uh, and is it the morning of the assassination? He leaves um, between a hundred and two hundred dollars in a right. glass on top of the dresser. He went to visit his wife on the morning of the assassination, and she woke up the next morning and found about $187 in a cup along with his wedding ring. Oswald was so destitute, he couldn't even afford to buy shoes for his little girl just a few days earlier. Now, uh, he had 13 or $14 in his pocket when he was arrested, which means he suddenly had $200. Where in the world did he get this money unless... The mafia paid him a little money up front to do the job, and they probably had no real intention of ever paying him. I think the plan all along was to rub him out. He knew too much. Mm -hmm. He was going to be the patsy who could talk, so they paid him a little money. And $200 may not seem like much to us today, but in owing to inflation, that's thousands of dollars right there for a normally unemployed uh, welfare uh, loafer like Oswald. He was working at that time for about $1.25 an hour. Right. Uh, he had gone on welfare, but when he got to Dallas, he got a job stacking books at the book depository, uh, and the parade route was uh, fixed up so that it went right past uh, the book depository if they made a very awkward series of turns, which it did. But Oswald was making like, a, what, $1.25, as you say. Mm -hmm. So there's almost no way he could have come up with this money magically. No. Uh, just just the night before the assassination on his own. Tell us about um, the connection that, that you and other researchers feel is there between Jack Ruby and Oswald. Carlos Marcello, the mobster, was um, bugged in his cell when he was in a Texarkana prison in the 1980s, and he bragged about, first, he was responsible for shooting President Kennedy. He set it up that he met Lee Oswald during the summer of 63, and then he also bragged that he pressured Jack Ruby, a nightclub owner in Dallas, to uh, gain access to the police station and gun down Oswald. Now, this seems uh, a little odd for Ruby to comply with, but first, uh, Ruby was considered a mafia asset. He had lots of mob friends. He knew that if he didn't comply, he'd be in a lot of trouble. And second, uh, it's not a well-known fact that Jack Ruby was diagnosed with terminal cancer in the summer of 63, according to a physician in New Orleans who diagnosed him, said later uh, Ruby knew he was going to die by the fall of 63. So there's extra incentive to have gotten involved and to make a name for yourself in the history books. 
and not have your uh, your brother, your sister, your family members harassed by the mafia by refusing their request, if you want to put it that way, of uh, murdering Lee Oswald to keep him silent. So there's a real connection between the mob and the nightclub uh, racket in those days. Uh, it seems hard to believe the mafia had real influence on politics and entertainment uh, back in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a quote also I remember reading from the book that when Oswald is walked out in front of reporters, uh, allegedly going to be walked to an armored car, one of the police officers uh, is overheard as saying, he'll never make it to the street. <laughs> I was surprised to read that one myself. Uh, this officer uh, knew Jack Ruby in the past. He knew that uh, shady characters sometimes had access to the police station. It was not incredibly well guarded, and he may have had some sort of information and said at the time, he'll never make it out of the building or he'll never make it to the armored car that they had waiting for him. So uh, this is another uh, deeply suspicious part of the plan to uh, make sure that um, Oswald never talked that he kept his yap shut, and then they removed him from the scene, and it kind of wrapped up the case, and Americans were able to get on with their lives. Mm-hmm. So you've got a man who is, by all intents and purposes, involved as one of the people, Lee Harvey Oswald, who um, would have known information about this conspiracy. Uh, he is shot and killed by Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby has been diagnosed with cancer. The mafia says, do this for us, and we'll leave your family alone and maybe get some money to you. So they know that he's going to die. So they've effectively taken care of things. And then we've talked about how the autopsy uh, for the Warren report, how things were shifted around to try to make them fit the magic uh, bullet theory and to rule out the fact that there was a triangulation of fire. Everything else, all the people, the witnesses, uh, the uh, other reports indicate there was a field of fire, a triangulation of fire, and that was all dismissed because of... Because of why? Why do, why do you suppose... Uh, someone asked Robert F. Kennedy about uh, enemies of the family, and he said, you want enemies? Take a look around. They're all over town. The Kennedys had ticked off the conservative uh, party in Congress. They had con- ticked off the conservative press, the conservative leadership of the CIA, including Dulles and Cabell, who they fired, the conservative uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who really despised the, the Kennedys and their uh, uh, sometimes naughty nocturnal habits. Uh, the Kennedys made enemies, great enemies of the mafia, who uh, felt like they should have been uh, rewarded for helping JFK get elected. Instead, they were being hounded, harassed, and jailed. And the Kennedys made enemies with Castro and in Cuba and with the Soviets. And so they were surrounded, as one uh, woman put it, uh, Jean Dixon, the famous psychic, said, I see JFK 
surrounded by mob after mob with no escape. She said this in print and predicted that he would be assassinated, and this mm-hmm. is exactly what happened. Uh, I put that into a final chapter in my book about all the psychic premonitions and the, the feelings of doom, including JFK's own secretary. So it makes for a fascinating story, a lot of information I'm sure many Americans have never heard before or considered, and uh, I think they'll find it uh, excellent reading. Uh, even if you don't agree with my theory's conclusion, you'll be astonished by some of the, the data that's been compiled, I'm mm-hmm. confident. Terry Hansen is the author, um, the late author, of The Missing Times, News Media Complicity in the UFO Cover-Up, also an author of an excellent paper called The Psychology of Dreamland. And Hansen said that there were two factors that have contributed to the public's distrust and uh, their lack of belief in government and the ways of old. And those two things were the assassination and cover-up of John F. Kennedy and the continuing cover-up of the UFO mystery. And uh, I was surprised to read this also. In the late 70s, they uncovered uh, CIA documents that talked about how they planted many CIA-friendly uh, moles or reporters on media staffs around the country or actual central intelligence agency operatives to uh, skew reports and uh, information in newspapers and magazines that was friendly to the CIA and uh, whatever theory they wanted to get across. Instead of the actual facts, I'm not sure if any of this is still going on today, but that was the media back in 63 in the days before the Internet. Mm-hmm. We don't have time to go into this, but the famous columnist Dorothy Kilgallen oh, was yeah. trying to dig at this. Um, she died of a very weird death. Very mysterious circumstances. She also was pinning this down on Carlos Marcello, the mafia, uh, Oswald New Ruby, and that it was a, a plot. And she just happened to die of a drug overdose in extremely dubious uh, circumstances. Uh, I believe uh, there is a new book out on that subject, and I would uh, encourage folks to look that up, too. And Marilyn Monroe who was alleged to be having or have had affairs with both John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy. Uh, she was claiming to that she was going to hold a news conference and uh, tell all. And a uh, number of people have guessed or tried to guess what she was going to talk about. And she dr- died a very mysterious death. I'm glad you asked that. It just happens to be the subject of my next book. I hope to get out within the next year or so. Really? But you, yes, you summarized it quite well. She was telling friends over very tapped telephones, I'm going to hold a press conference and blow the lid off of everything. And uh, she was suddenly found dead of a, uh, a overdose of drugs, which, <laughs> amazingly, there were no pills found in her stomach. And so extremely dubious circumstances, and she was, of course, forever silent. So I uh, am taking that case on an hour-by-hour basis, laying it all out for the, uh, the murder of Marilyn Monroe. Paul, thank you so much for uh, being with us. And if people want to reach you about your work with JFK, the assassination, and this brand-new theory of yours about the earlier event that could have taken place October 1st, 1963 in Washington, D.C. with Oswald. How can people reach you? Uh, The best and easiest way is to go to my Facebook page. It's, as you mentioned, called JFK and the Willard Hotel Plot. 
You can also reach me uh, through my publisher and write to them. Uh, I don't have a specific website this time as I did for my Cape Girardeau UFO books, but I get so many uh, friendly and uh, supportive messages and little bits of uh, insider data via Facebook. I thought I'd just go with that route alone this time. Okay, my friend, thank you very much for uh, this compelling book, and I hope it's read by a lot of people and really stirs up a lot of conversation. Thank you for being here, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Paul Blake-Smith, and you'll find JFK and the Willard Hotel plot is a Facebook page for Paul. The brand new book, JFK and the Willard Hotel plot. Wow. Jim, what do you got planned for the rest of today? Stay home inside out of the cold. (laughs) I'm going to venture out in just a couple of minutes, but you know what? There's a great show coming up with Victor Valverde. There is. I'll have it on my radio in the car. Mesoterra. Always a fun show. You bet. Uh, Anything special planned, Victor? Uh, Yeah. uh, We're doing uh, part 11 of our 60s series. We're going to the late 60s. Part 11 of the 1960s series, the late 60s. Okay, cool. I'll be listening. You bet. Thanks so much, folks, for being out there uh, as we celebrate 34 years of broadcast. I'm Scott Colborn, along with Jim and Colleen. Until next week, walk in beauty.